What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hey everyone, perhaps the biggest news since the start of Smart People Podcast, I am launching a new podcast. It's called The Week on Earth. It is produced by Peabody Award-winning producer Elise Louie, music done by a Grammy Award-winning musician, and hosted by me and my brother. It's unlike anything you've ever heard, and we're running a giveaway to all who subscribe. So listen to the intro coming up now and get more details and go follow the week on earth, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Temp here. Listen, have you entered the giveaway? Have you entered it? Here's all you need to do, and you can win a Fitbit, uh, Kindle Fire, and your odds are probably around one in 20. Like five seconds of your time, one in 20. Here's all you have to do. Follow or subscribe to my new podcast, which is called the week on earth screenshot that you're following that and email the screenshot to chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com follow slash subscribe to the week on earth take a screenshot email it to chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com you're entered into a giveaway to win either a fire hd 8 plus tablet or two fitbits brand new inspire two fitbits 
Oh, and by the way, the podcast, the new one, is awesome. The episode that just dropped on recycling will blow your mind. Okay, you know what else will blow your mind? Our episode this week. I truly left this inspired and in belief that we will have a better world soon. This week on the show, we are interviewing Mauro Porcini. He is PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer, and he's the author of an incredible book that you can pre-order now, and it's called The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. Listen, if you are like me, and you often question the motives of the corporate world, how it's sucking the lifeblood out of many of us at times, and that might be a little glib, but I do feel like sometimes we are just cogs in a machine trading our time, giving away the only thing we have on this planet and often not even really seen as valuable. Well, Mauro presents a different view and it's quite compelling. I think you can gain that from the title, which is the human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. He talks about how the next evolution of capitalism is going to have to be one where we're not just trying to compete, dominate, and win, but when we're willing to work together and unleash human potential. Sounds like a pipe dream. I've heard it said different ways. This one grabbed a hold of me. So I hope you love it. If you do, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, add free episodes and more. And again, don't forget, subscribe to The Week on Earth. All right, let's get into our episode with Mauro Porcini, PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer, among many things, as we talk about his new book, The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. Enjoy. You talk about the value of a unicorn. Unicorns today are thought of as billion-dollar companies. That has always been a struggle for me as my number one focus in life is people. So tell my audience what you mean by a unicorn and why you believe a needed thing in organizations and in the world today. Look, uh, for many years, for more than 25 years, I've been building teams for my agency at the beginning and then for the companies I was working for and building new capabilities from scratch. I came into the 3M company, the tech company from Minnesota, and then later on in PepsiCo um, as the first head of design and with the role of creating that kind of function. But at the end of the day, that kind of function means that kind of culture, a design culture. So I needed to find people that were incredible designers great practitioners, you know, with very good skills in the design world, but that had also a series of other skills that were necessary to build a culture and to become ambassadors of this culture. And so very soon I realized that I was working with recruiters that were putting in front of me a series of extraordinary designers, but that eventually didn't have all the right skills already at the time of 3M. So I started to write down what were those skills. I, I brought the list, I shared it with the HR team. And then over the years, for 
17 years since I wrote that list, I started to tweak that list, to validate that list, to pressure test that list and evolve the list more and more. Uh, the list is a list of skills or soft skills and characteristics that sometimes you find in these corporations and sometimes you don't. Actually, they are the opposite of what you may find in some of these organizations. I love to be surrounded by kind people, by people that are optimistic, by people that are curious. And then later on, I realized that there were those skills were really, really powerful to advance the culture I was creating, to advance design. And for design, I mean innovation applied to branding, to new products, and to the overall business of the company. I, we, we ended up calling them unicorns in, uh, when I was in PepsiCo a few years ago, talking with my leadership team because they're so difficult to find. So who are they? What do they, what kind of characteristics do they have? I mentioned some of them. Some are obvious. They're dreamers. They love visions and they protect the dream and the vision in the day-to-day -day because it's easy to dream at the beginning, but then in the day-to-day, -day, the roadblocks of life, in the routine, in the pressure of the deliverables of every day, you end up giving up on those dreams. You think that they're not realizable. Actually, society and companies tell you that the dream is naive, that you shouldn't dream because dreaming is, you know, is not what we need. We need to be tangible, concrete. So they're dreamers and they protect those dreams. But then they're also able to combine those dreams with the ability to make things happen, to execute. I met many dreamers in my life that were just dreamers and they love to dream. And it's so comfort. If you love to dream and you're able to protect that dream, at a certain point, it's even comfortable to just enjoy the status of the dream. Now, there are other characteristics, though, that you don't hear executives talking about. How many times did you hear a hiring executive say, is this person kind or is this person respectful or is a curious person or an optimistic person? And let's take kindness, for instance, as one of them. I think it's probably the, for me, it's characteristic number zero. My HR team, my recruiting team in PepsiCo knows that the filter number zero, before even we start with all the others, is kindness, is an ethical value. I mean, society would be so much better if we would be surrounded by kind people. Sooner or later, we know, we know, you, Chris, know, I know, as Mauro, that sooner or later, statistically certain, we will have a difficult moment at work and a difficult moment in life. It's going to happen. This is statistically, you know, 100% sure. So when there is that difficult moment, if you are surrounded by people that are not kind, you know that will profit of the situation to take advantage of you. If you are surrounded by people that are kind, they will be there for you, to help you. Now, this is great for you as a person, but think now about the company. The company is better to have a team that is going to be inefficient in a moment one person becomes weak because of the difficult moment, or it's better for a company to have a hyper-efficient team with people there for each other, helping each other, building synergies, uh, to drive productivity and efficiency and quality in what they do. Now multiply this for the hundreds of thousands of people that are in corporations like mine. And imagine the amount of productivity you can generate or the lack of productivity and is invisible. This is something nobody talks about that you have if you have this kind of people.
you know, you, I, I'm going to close. You may think, why then for so many years, we actually heard many very famous and renowned business leaders saying that actually you should be a little bit, a little bit tough at work. You should be a shark. You should be like this because, and or theories of management that are all about putting people against each other. A Darwinian kind of approach where if you put a person against the other, you know that they're going to compete and the strongest and the strongest idea will prevail and will win. Well, this was possible in the past. Today, we live in a world that is completely different for multiple reasons. But the first and the most important for these companies is that they need to be hyper-efficient. And they cannot afford the redundancy of two people fighting with each other or doing the same thing, overlapping, because you think that one will prevail. You don't have that wealth anymore as a company. Why? Well, we need to thank technology, globalization, and, and digital media. Essentially, today, anybody can come up with an idea, get easy access to funding through platforms like kickstarter.com or the proliferation of investment funds. The cost of manufacturing is going down, driven by globalization and new technologies, so it costs less to produce. So you can, you, Chris, a person there in the street, can come up with an idea, get funding. The cost of producing is lower. You go straight to the end user through e-commerce. You build your ecosystem of communication through social media. You go compete with the big brands for the first time in history. These big brands cannot protect their products. Eventually, Sometimes they're mediocrity anymore with barrier to entry made of scale of production, distribution, and communication. And so what do they need to do? They need to be hyper-efficient and they need to create extraordinary solutions. So they need super team of hyper-specialized people that work in perfect synergy together. It's not the moment for putting people against each other. That's too inefficient. It's the moment of putting people together and kindness is one of those glues that put people together together you know with other skills so i do believe in the next 20 30 years the culture of these corporations will become completely different but we need more and more ambassadors of this human side to anything we do and kindness in particular this episode is brought to you by rocket money if i asked you how many subscriptions you have would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying if you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction 
hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s.com/smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hims.com/smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. Like you just riffed for 10 minutes on the thing I have been pleading for and begging for since I was 22 years old. When I first entered the corporate world and said, whoa, like I don't even matter. I've heard a very senior leader say, yes, we value people, but we value people for what they can do. And like, this is what I don't understand. Company like the size of Pepsi and, and, and what you do, what it sounds like you're saying is we can put people above profit, recognizing that when we do that, profit will be greater. Now, one, do you think that can be true? And two, if so, why does it appear, in my myopic view, to not be the standard today? First of all, it's not the standard because it was not necessary until now. These companies were living in the illusion of creating you know, something extraordinary. But what was extraordinary was most of the time their scale, and that's for sure extraordinary, their productivity, they were machines. I mean, the way they produce and they, they distribute and they sell is unbelievable. So what was extraordinary was <clears throat> often the invention of the product, the brand, the beginning of it. But then after that, what you needed in this company for so many years was productivity. You needed to extract out of that great product and great brand as much value as possible. So the productivity of, of this machine was really, really important. Today, you need more. You need more than that. You need to keep innovating. You need more quality. You need people that act in a different way. And therefore, you need to value people for what they do. Your executive was partially right. What he was forgetting, though, is that what you do is the result of what you are and how you feel. And holistically, you as a human being at work and in life, you know, outside of work. And that's why we need to invest so much on those people generating any kind of value for the organization. The other dimension we need to invest on, you know, I, the, this idea in the title also of the book of people in love with people, the other people I talk about are the people we serve. 
what many companies call consumers with a word that I particularly dislike, the people that I love to just call people or human beings. And the reason why I dislike the word consumer is that right away you identify a human being as a person you want to make money on. Because a consumer, by definition, is somebody buying your stuff. And, and if you, in a company, call people consumers, that company will just think about selling them stuff, no matter what is that stuff. But if you call them people, there is a higher probability that the culture of the company is driven by this idea of creating value for them. It's a fundamental uh, difference. And so even in that, I mean, actually all starts from that. So now that you need to focus on creating something extraordinary for people, you need a certain breed of people to do that. You know, when I talk about people in love with people, I think that those three words summarize everything. Because the first people is the unicorns, the, one, the, the ones that we partially described earlier in, the, in this conversation. The, the second people is the people we serve. And the idea of love is a little bit of the synthesis of what the unicorns do. Because when you love somebody, you care for somebody, you try to create something extraordinary for them. You don't look at them, first of all, as consumers. You don't look at your, you know, I have a four-month baby. I would never call my baby, you are a consumer, you know. <laughs> she's my baby. She's my baby. But the words are so powerful. She's my baby. And so when I design, you know, products for babies as a company selling stuff to babies, I need that kind of love from people serving those babies. I don't need those people thinking, okay, I need to appeal to the mom. I need to make this profit. I cannot invest too much on this. And there are, you need to start first with the idea of creating something extraordinary for them. Then obviously you're a company. You need to figure out all the other dimensions. You know, in design thinking, we talk about desirability. Everything starts with that. But then there is feasibility and viability. There is the business and the technology. I, my, you know, I, I'm not that naive. I'm still an executive of corporations. I understand this dimension, but it needs to start and end with this love for people. And this is where everything started. If you think about the history of humanity, the very first products that were ever designed by the prehistoric men and women were tools to hunt, taking a stone and starting to you know, modify the stone and, and work the stone to create something to hunt and then to process food. Later on, to decor your body. And when you are doing that, what were you doing? You are creating something because you personally needed it and the people around you, your community, your little group of people needed it. It was an act of love for yourself and for the people surrounding you. All of those products, hundreds and then thousands and Hundreds of thousands of products later on have been designed and produced in a way. That's the original reason why we invented the idea of producing something that Mother Nature didn't do by herself. Then something happened. We started to have so many products that, and so they were so complex to make that we needed to delegate the act of love. We needed to ask others to produce it for us. We organized ourselves in societies. We had you know, we invented the idea of jobs and specializations and different people were doing different things, helping each other. And then you scale it up and you arrive today to the size of these mega corporations. And what happened between the prehistoric man and, you know, that act of love for somebody else and what we have today? Well, scale and distance from the person producing to the person you serve.
And so instead of creating personal values in a selfless way, you know, love for somebody else, now you put profit first and then the value later. And so we are defeating, we are betraying the very nature of why we invented the idea of producing stuff and why it was literally serving our needs in the Maslow pyramid from safety, physiology, all the way to self-expression, all the way to transcendence. We were serving that and therefore we are serving our happiness and the happiness of our community. Today, we forgot about this and we are serving profit. That is generating eventually maybe, you know, some form of benefit for few, but we forgot why we invented all of this. There was, the idea was to create happiness, to create value, to serve the people. We need to go back there and thank God. It's not just an idealistic thought. We live in a world where if your company doesn't do it, sooner or later, somebody will do it because we have millions of people out there looking at our companies and thinking, how can I be? that brand and they're going to look at all the frustrations that people have with the product and brand and they will try to come in this is what happened with uh, the airbnb of my friend joe gabbia with uber with a variety of other uh, startups that became then corporations out there how do you make a vacation last how do you hold on to the joy the clarity the calm easy you go to aruba You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's like two sides of the same coin. Some people have this belief that if we are generating monetary value, that shows that we are generating human value because they're buying it. But that misses part of the story, I think, that says if we view it that way, then we will only look for efficiencies and opportunities to increase the bottom line, as opposed to we can look more holistically at areas to improve lives, which will naturally raise the bottom line and do both things while benefiting society as a whole. And and this is the thing that gets me caught up. And I'm very curious, you work at a large, you know, one of the largest companies in the world. How do we take this same passion and apply it at a place like Pepsi and the same belief? And and how do you attract these unicorns and how do you leverage them when you you don't have the ability to say, look, we're, you know, Greenpeace, we're saving the world or we're saving, you know, the the whales or climate change, or, you know what I mean? I want to answer to something you said at the beginning, and then I'm going to answer to this as well. Great. Uh, the idea that if you create financial value, you're going to create also value for people, and then, then you add different ideas on top of it. But, you know, s- focusing for a second on that, uh, the, this is more true today. It was less true in the past for many, many years for a simple reason. Because if you are going to a store, and you had two products to choose from, and they were both average, there was not much choice. So at the end of the day, you were buying one of those two. And if those two products were distributed worldwide, they were everywhere, of course, they were selling a lot. So today, because you have the digital platform of e-commerce, because you have social media to promote alternatives, is a completely different kind of situation. Indeed, 
in the list of meaningful design principles, the principle they define a meaningful product, solution, brand experience, I decided to add also the financial value that is blaspheme for the design community. I mean, oh my God, you could have, on top of, you know, usability, the emotional value, the social value and everything, you put the financial value. I put it at the end, say, no, first you need to consider all the others. You need to, the human being. But there is also that, for the reason you explained, because the more you sell, the more you reach people with your great ideas, because there are so many designers creating few things for few people and <laughs> creating value for nobody. So the more financial value, they and by the way, the more financial value you create, the more they're going to invest on you. So if you drive the human side of innovation, if you drive the first principle, so you create products that are good, and you also sell them, you're doing good for the, for humanity, you're doing good for the company, they're going to invest in more of your ideas. And so it's a great kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so look, you have two choices in life. One is to fight the system from outside. The other one is to join the system and change it from within. So I do think, you know, that... There is a powerful way of changing the world and society, leveraging the platforms of companies that give you access to billions of people every day. It's complex. It's very difficult. You need to go in and there are cultures that are established or business models that are established. And then you start, you need to start working with the company, with the system to start to steer, you know, everything in the right direction. And therefore, the big challenge is to combine what the world needs and what society needs with what the company needs as well. And I found in 3M, in PepsiCo, in the past 20 plus years, wonderful platforms to do something like this. What we're doing in PepsiCo in the world of sustainability health and wellness, personalization of solutions for people enabled by technology. I mean, I feel and my team feels like we are really moving, you know, not just PepsiCo, the industry in the right direction. And I think that you need people with this kind of dreams and this kind of passion, but also very concrete, very pragmatic, you know. not like, You need to, to have the idea the ideals and the dreams, but also the pragmatism to work with others to take trade-offs and compromises. It's okay. And this is the challenge I have, you know, for many people that are very extreme in their point of views. I respect how extreme you are in your idea, you know, around certain things. The problem is that if you keep being that extreme, you're not going to change anything. Instead, if you find ways to incrementally move things in the right direction, that's when you create real value. That's when you change the world. And so I desperately need and invite people that have those kind of ideas that want to change the world to join these kind of companies and together, you know, get together and influence the organization to go in the right direction. You know, the, what I'm pushing in, in Patrick, first of all, you know, I found a CEO in Ramon Laguarta that is embracing this value, you know, this idea of positive and all this focus on sustainability. So uh, credit to the, to the CEO and multiple executives. But I, you know, you come in with certain kind of ideas and then you start to look for what I call the co-conspirators. These are people 
that you know you hunt for and are ready to take a leap of faith on you and your vision and start to build things together. Actually, there are five phases that this change of culture goes through that I decodified when I was still at 3M. And, I, and actually, they were part of my interview. When, when I, Indra Nui, the former CEO of, of PepsiCo, interviewed me, I shared with her these five phases because it was clear that my role was not the one of just doing design in the company. She had a dossier super, you know, very high on me and what I did and all the projects and everything. Our conversation was all about how to design culture and instead of designing products and brands. And so I share with her this idea of the five phases that I developed in, 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 in 3M. So the, the first phase is what I call the denial. So the company doesn't understand that you need to change and is in total denial. If you keep, and usually that happens at the beginning of a need of a major shift, the company denies that. If you keep being denial, then you end up like Blockbuster or Kodak, a variety of other companies, you know, and what happened to them. But usually there is somebody in the company that understands that you need to change. It needs to be somebody at the top of the company because this person needs to have enough power to make things happen, the shift happen. And in, the, in my specific case, in the case of design, back then in the case of 3M, this, this person was a top executive of the organization. His name is Monozari, and he was the EVP of the consumer business of 3M. So he decided to hire this kid in Italy, so not risking a lot. I mean, I was 27, not giving me the chief design officer position. He just hired a young designer in Italy to start the creation of, to incubate a design function with zero risk in the periphery of the American empire, in Italy, in the country of design, blah, blah, blah. All the stereotypes, right? So here, he, he, but at least he tries, like, okay, I see that I need to start changing things. And, and so here I am, and I take my suitcase, and I go on my first business trip to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and I meet all these scientists and business leaders, and they start to pitch my ideas with the same passion you can hear, you know, in my voice right now. And so here I am, and and I and everybody re- receive my ideas in a very positive way. They're all happy, and they're like, "Oh my God! I mean, this is great. It's so much easier. It's going to be so much easier than what I was thinking." So I go to the office of Mo of Monozari. We are calling him Doctor Nozari. And, and I tell him, Dr. Nozari, it's fantastic. I mean, everybody's embracing our idea of design. We're going to change this company so fast, blah, blah, blah. And more, he was always very serious. He, look, he looks at me very seriously and he says, they are all lying to you. I'm like, Mo, no, 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 Dr. Nozari, no, no. You are not in the room. They are not lying. You know, I have a very IQ, empathy. I feel people. You don't understand. It's different. They, they really believe it. And he looks at me again and he's like, I'm telling you that they're all lying to you. And then he goes on in explaining what he meant with, a, with an analogy, with a sort of metaphor. He, he told me, look, imagine you are in a gallery and in front of you there is a beautiful, beautiful painting. You love that painting and you have a lot of money in your pockets. What do you do? You take out the money and you buy the painting. Well, Mauro, you and design are one of the paintings in the gallery of 3M. Nobody is buying you. I know how much money they have because I give the money to them. They have a lot of money and they're investing the money in the next HR program, in the next plant, in the next, you know, launch of a new product. They're not investing in design. They're not giving the money. 
And that was, that was one of the major aha moments of my professional life because, because it was right. It was right. And why? Why was that happening? Well, there are multiple reasons. One is, first of all, that maybe it's a passive-aggressive kind of behavior or simply it's, it's a form of kindness. Or I shouldn't use the word kindness, but be nice. That is different than actually kindness. They wanted to be nice with this kid from Italy, so passionate. Or maybe they were having really a good time. For one hour, we were talking about style and fashion and Italy and everything. And then they were going back to their laboratories. And so it was fun for them in that moment. Or maybe, you know, as human beings, we love to think they were loved. So maybe I, I didn't capture certain weak signals that were already in the room, in their body language. But I, I love the idea they were loving me. I don't want to be rejected. So there are a series of reasons why we often don't understand that somebody is rejecting us. You know, there is a data, the curve of adoption of new products. We know statistically that, I don't remember the exact number, but around 2.5% of people are ready to adopt a new product at the very, very beginning. And then the ones that come immediately after, you know, the innovators are around 8 9%. So the people that are really ready to be early adopters and innovators are around the 11 12%. This applies not just to product, but also to culture, to anything. This is human nature. So statistically, what I realized was that every time I push a new idea, probably nine people out of 10 will reject it. One out of 10 will be with me. If I see 10 people with me, it means that something is wrong. Either my idea is not new enough or they're lying to me. But long story short, I developed a strategy. So I called, first of all, this phase, the hidden rejection. So after denial, you move to hidden rejection. It's very dangerous because you think you're getting traction, but in reality, you're not. You may lose six months, one year, and by the time you realize that actually people are not with you, are not helping you, are not embracing your ideas, it may be late. This company moves fast. So what do I do in the moment to find the co-conspirators, that one person out of 10, that 10% of the people? I ask them right away a sacrifice, a commitment. Essentially, I ask them to do something. Usually, the best commitment is money. Give me the money to start. It could be to hire people. It could be to pay a project. But I, I, or in the worst case scenario, at least I need a public commitment that you believe in the idea in front of people. You need to expose yourself and be part of this. The most of the time, the people you are thinking were with you, we say, no, actually, let's do it later. You know, now is, I have other priorities, blah, blah. So when that happens, great. First of all, you give yourself and the person a new opportunity to have a conversation and answer any doubt they may have about your idea directly. And so maybe you can get one extra person out of the, you know, the nine that are rejecting you. But even if you don't, great. At least you know who is not with you. And you're not going to waste any time. You're going to be very efficient with the person that is with you. With them, you move to the third phase. That is what I call the occasional leap of faith. And it's a leap of faith because it's something new. There is risk, you know. And so these are people that are willing to invest in you. Uh, over the years, I also find different way, found different ways to, to identify them. For instance, when somebody takes a new position in an organization, boom, I'm in, right away in front of the person, proposing this person to do things differently from the predecessors, leveraging what design can offer. As an example, there are other criteria, but 
uh, you know, uh, it would be too long. But let's say with them, you, the co-conspirators, you start to build proof points. It could be a proof point related to culture, related to a product, to a business model, anything, you know, that you're changing. Once you start to have a few proof points, then the other people that rejected you, some of them will come to you and be like, well, actually, I see that there is value. I would like to try. And you're like, okay, give me the money. You know, right, invest. right, right. At that point, they may do it, and then you start to be proof, more proof points. When you have a critical mass of proof points, you move to the fourth phase. Is when the companies start to realize that actually in this new culture, there is real value. And they're like, okay, now we need to invest for real. This is this was startup-like, pioneers. Now we need to scale it up. And you face a completely different kind of set of challenges. Because now these pioneers, these pirates, need to become executives of the company and they need to understand processes and ways of working and tools and and you need scale is also a moment where the company theoretically gets it they see that design is creating value is everywhere but then you in the day-to-day you start to steps over the toes of the r&d function the marketing function the insights function because you do a little bit of what they do or because you want to change what they're doing and that's where usually often this kind of new initiatives die on the scale of the scaling in the initiative. It's similar to when a corporation acquires a, a startup and try to integrate it and kill completely the culture of that organization. Yes. yes. So you, you need to protect the culture in the scaling up, but in the meantime, you need to evolve also the, the startup culture to be more corporate and to be more integrated in the organization. I call this phase the quest for confidence because it's not just a process, about processes and tools. This is what everybody talks about, but it's also about inner emotional confidence that what you're doing at, at this moment, at big scale, so you start to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in this thing, you need to be confident that it's going to work. And you need a set of experts in-house to build that kind of culture in the genetic code of the organization and bring the other people with them in, in this process. And then finally, you move to the fifth phase that is what I call holistic awareness, when the new culture is completely integrated inside the organization. By the way, this is a phase where I, I, you know, I never want to arrive because the moment you arrive to something you know, that is close to holistic awareness, your culture is there. I'm always thinking, okay, what's next? What else can I do that the company is not embracing yet in a never-ending, you know, loop to improve every day? You know, and this is true also in your own life. I, in the book, there is a quote. If you open the book, there are these fuchsia pages with different quotes extracted from the book. One of these quotes say, uh, I want to be a student of life, a student for life meaning that I see every opportunity in my life as an opportunity to learn, to grow myself, and I don't want to stop. Too many times you arrive to a certain point in your life, in your journey, you're like, okay, I'm successful, I know it all, and now the people, especially people, you know, they report to me or the people out there, they need to listen to me because I figure it out. And that's when you stop growing, you stop learning. And the wise man and Socrates thousands of years ago already told us is the one that knows that he or she doesn't know the wise man or woman. So, and and this is, you know, I, I have so many friends that think in this way, the more you grow, you the more you realize that you don't know Anything. Anything. I know. You know nothing. We yeah. have 
powder in the universe and and but in a positive way you're like fuck i, I have so much to learn yes. i want 10 lives to yes. learn more you know the, i mean anyway well what <laughs> a couple of things here one what you just hit on is this podcast like the the most maddening thing about it is every week or every other week talking to somebody on a different subject and being like oh my gosh i want to know everything about it and it just it, it has really opened my eyes up to how little i know and how little i can ever know but I want to get back to, you know, you mentioned the five stages of the culture and, and you mentioned culture a number of times. And I have I know we only have a few minutes left, so I have a couple of questions I'm hoping to wrap in here. One is, how do you prevent the business side from eating away at the culture? Everybody is asking for more. And so now what we did is we went to a pandemic where we were virtual and we were able to sit on more meetings because we never had to leave. We were able to work longer because we never had to commute. We were able to eat at our desk because our kitchen was right next to it. Now, many companies are going back to the office or hybrid. And I'm finding that this is going to be a struggle because we're going to ask for the same efficiency in a different environment. And I, I really don't see how we keep up. So what I'm starting to observe, and I see these trends, I believe, globally, at least nationwide, is how do we prevent this push towards efficiency from eating away at the individuals who make up our culture and put humans in an environment that is not conducive to their best selves? Look, uh, this is such a wonderful question because it's a real threat. First of all, I think in the long run, if companies apply that kind of approach, they will start to burn out people and they will start to leave. I mean, that's, that is gonna happen to companies that don't have that kind of expectations and that kind of culture. Now, to prevent that from happening, I think there are two things that should happen. On one side is the body of the company trying to push back on that in a variety of different ways, but being loud. And we saw, you know, if you check the media today, we saw that there are a variety of different people in some organizations and companies are pushing back to their own companies on some of these aspects. The other one is to, if you are an executive and you believe in work-life balance, be an ambassador of this, be loud about this, pitch this. And this is why, you know, for me, this book is, is more than a book. It's like a mission, literally, in life. When I was a kid, I was, uh, you know, I was good at talking. You know, I, I was a storyteller already as a child. And I remember both my mom, my mom wanted me to be a priest. She's super, super Catholic. Uh, and also the, the priest of my church, same thing. And both of them were telling me, you know, you could really be an amazing storyteller of God and, and do good in the world and push it. And I had no intention of becoming a priest and I had my own, you know, trajectory in life and everything. But somehow I brought with me those values that are not the values of a Catholic religion of any religion, are values of, you know, be good human beings, no matter, you know, what you do and who you are. And, and that was an instinct. And, uh, and as I told you uh, uh, earlier, later on in life, I became more aware of the value of these kind of values, uh, both you know, for society, but then also for these companies. And then I became literally an ambassador. And somehow I feel like today I'm doing what my mom wanted me to do, but in a completely different kind of platform. And actually, she told me, look, my dream came true, but with a completely different kind of journey. 
and inner vision of the world. Obviously, this is this is God that decided this for me, but you know, it could be destiny or anything. But what I'm saying is, look, the passion that you see in me, and I feel the same passion in you uh, for this kind of values. If me, you, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of other people believe in this, let's become ambassadors of this. Thank God, I'm also seeing that no matter, you know, there is a push in many companies for productivity and efficiency and that, I see also an HR community that is, especially in the United States, that is becoming more and more and more aware of this work-life balance idea. So I think, you know, that also that could somehow rebalance some of the ask for productivity and when these companies will start to see the burnout of these people out there hopefully they will realize but again the more ambassadors we have the more books like this are written the more podcasts are created that talk about this the more we can push these companies to to do the right thing and by the way we don't need all of them to do it we just need a few that become the safe harbor for people to go to and then they will push the others to do the same you know, it's funny as you were saying it, it reminds me of your five stages of culture, right? It's the same thing on a societal level as it is an inside a company. So what you're, I mean, you probably knew this, your little Trojan horse here is to start inserting this, find the early 11%, see, are you going to do something about it? I absolutely love it. And I'm in. Your Trojan horse worked. I'm in. I mean, I've been in. So listen, Mario, I know we are up on time. The book is The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. My favorite line, people in love with people, putting value back into caring about the person instead of just the job or the output or the whatever we want to call it comes out the other end. So first of all, thank you for the work you're doing. Where can people find more about you? Tell me you're out there spreading this gospel, at least on social media or something where we can link to and find you. Yeah, Instagram, I'm very active, Mauro Porcini. And then LinkedIn, I'm very active there as well, Mauro Porcini as well. Great. I post every day. Great. I appreciate that. Well, Mauro, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. This week's guest was Mauro Porcini. As always, it was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Mauro's book, The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People, will be available on October 18th. And now let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. We're trying to keep up with the trends, so that means we're now on TikTok. So head over to TikTok, Smart People Podcast, and follow us there, and let us know what you think of the content that we're putting out. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned, because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.